it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern, right here. We hope you can listen live across our great affiliates and all the other avenues to get to the show as it airs. If you can't, we have a podcast that is free on demand every day. Guy Benson Show, G-U-Y-B-E-N-S-O-N Show, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. You can also get the podcast through FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We just recommend GuyBensonShow.com. That is the easiest. You can also follow us if you would, on social media, Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at Guy Benson Show. We've got a great lineup today, including our first guest coming up live from Brussels in a moment here. Carol Markowitz will be here later in the hour. In the next hour, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee. She is on the Judiciary Committee. She has been asking questions of the Supreme Court nominee yesterday. She will do so again later. We will talk to Senator Blackburn about those hearings and more. And also in our final hour, Dr. Marty McCary will be here talking about this new variant, a huge spike in South Korea of cases, their first major wave, and it's a big one, what that might mean for the United States, what it might mean for children and schools. We'll get to all of that with Dr. McCary. We begin with a Fox News alert. And this just broke moments ago, reading from the Wall Street Journal, Madeleine Albright who, as Secretary of State during the Clinton administration, became the first woman to serve as the nation's top diplomat, has died of cancer at the age of 84. Albright presided over a U.S. diplomacy in the aftermath of the Cold War, renegotiating the nation's relationship with Russia and advocating the enlargement of NATO by including former Soviet states. Her own experiences with authoritarian governments during her formative years shaped Albright's approach to the world and meant she paid particular attention to issues in Eastern Europe. Her native Czechoslovakia fell under the sway of first Adolf Hitler, then Joseph Stalin, leading her to flee the country with her family. A facility with languages, she spoke fluent Czech and French, and conversational Polish and Russian enhanced her ability to build rapport with foreign counterparts. Her family releasing a statement Just minutes ago, we are heartbroken to announce that Dr. Madeleine K. Albright, the 64th U.S. Secretary of State and the first woman to hold that position, passed away earlier today. The cause was cancer. She was surrounded by family and friends. We have lost a loving mother, grandmother, sister, aunt, and friend. And the statement goes on to talk about some of her achievements in what was a very consequential and high-profile career. So rest in peace to the former Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, dead today at the age of 84. And with that, let's shift and get to our first guest on the program today. It's Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel's White House correspondent, and he joins us live from Brussels, Belgium, 
where the president of the United States is scheduled to land in a matter of minutes, I believe within the hour. Peter, good of you to join us. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me, Guy. Let's just start with the basics of this trip. I think a lot of Americans know that Biden is headed over to Europe. He's meeting with NATO leaders sort of under an urgent circumstance with this war raging in Ukraine. He'll be visiting at least two countries. What is the timetable for this trip? Where is he scheduled to appear and when? So we've got him at at NATO and the European Commission tomorrow. And uh, Friday, he's going to travel to Poland for some meetings on Saturday. That's obviously the country that's catching so many of these refugees from Ukraine. And it's really interesting. In the last uh, hour and a half, we found out that uh, NATO is sending troops to the so-called eastern flank of the alliance because there is concern Putin will not stop in Ukraine. And they're also preparing a new, uh, possibly some sanctions on Putin's energy exports. Uh, You know, the Russians are still making millions of dollars a day on, uh, on exporting oil to European countries. And Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, was just saying we should look for an announcement about that maybe changing on Friday. So, uh, the, the strategy so far has been sanctions, 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 and more sanctions, uh, and we expect some of that, but it, it seems like there might be a little more to it this week. Speaking of Poland, there were at least some images that I saw floating around from the Russian embassy in Warsaw, where there were plumes of smoke, and it appeared that the diplomats inside might have been burning documents, which is typically what is done before an embassy is abandoned for national security reasons. Some people were worried, does this mean that the Russians might invade Poland? I think that's extremely premature and and probably a a bit hysterical at the moment, Poland being a NATO country that would unleash a major war. But it could mean that they might be cutting ties with the Poles sometime soon and will be leaving that embassy behind. Is there anything you can bring us on that? Is that something on the White White House radar right now? Uh, We don't have anything on that yet. But again, we do expect the president on the ground uh, within the next hour, hour and a half. And uh, we're hoping to hear from him then. Is there any chance, based on what you're hearing, that the White House might have the president step into Ukrainian territory, onto Ukrainian soil? I know the White House has said there were no plans to that effect. Some people have wondered, could that send a very powerful message? Would it be safe, though, for a president to do that? Do you have any indication that that might even be under consideration for this trip? So the only indication is that White House officials are being really coy about a huge hole in the president's schedule on Friday. Uh, We know that the secretary of state, Tony Blinken, when he was in uh, Poland a few weeks ago, did step into Ukraine. He crossed the border. Uh, We know that's something Mike Pence did when he visited recently. Uh, So for security reasons, uh, with missiles flying, they're not going to tell us anything in advance. But that's that's the main source of uh, curiosity about possibly uh, sending him into Ukraine. Okay, that's intriguing for Friday. We'll keep an eye on that. You talked about the potential levying of additional sanctions on top of all the sanctions that we've already seen from the United States, from the Western world that will likely be one of the main focuses of conversation and sort of the news being made on this trip, additional sanctions. Is there anything else that your White House contacts are telling you and the press corps 
that this administration and this president hopes or seeks to get out of this trip, either sort of setting a message on optics or more substantively with these NATO allies in these meetings? Are they pointing to certain goals and objectives? Yeah, well, a a big uh, objective that seems to become more pressing for them by the day is that China has been helping the Russians, not with military support at this point, but by putting out certain kinds of propaganda, by blocking a U.N. resolution since they're on the Security Council. And so uh, there is new concern, and the NATO uh, chief said this afternoon, uh, they are going to try to address the the role that China is playing right now, which which really does set up. You know, we heard last night the president's talking about a new world order possibly uh, being formed with this whole situation uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, And now we're getting a good idea of what it could look like. Russia and China versus the West. Last question about this trip in particular. Do you have a sense of media availability questions to be asked and answered, hopefully, by the president and some of his counterparts, some of these leaders who will be at the meeting. Are there any scheduled press conferences where the president might go and take questions and maybe make some news? Yes, there is a scheduled press conference for tomorrow afternoon, but I I was at the last NATO press conference he did, and it slid a lot because these meetings go long. So some point tomorrow afternoon or tomorrow evening, we do expect to hear from him. Not sure about Friday or Saturday yet. Meanwhile, Peter Ducey, some other interesting storylines unrelated to this trip, unrelated to Ukraine, but coming out of the White House. One of them is yet another round of seeming sort of leak wars between the president's office in the West Wing and the vice president's office over in the EEOB and more feuding and angst and that sort of thing. We saw the vice president over in Eastern Europe not that long ago. The press from the trip was not very good probably because her performance was not very good. Now the president's headed over there. And I just wonder, given the the volume of these leaks, and it's been pretty steady now for months, but there's been an uptick in the last couple of days in particular, is that maybe drama and distraction that the White House is annoyed by? Are they fueling it themselves? Is it something that they're talking about or whispering about? Because certainly the chattering class here in town is pretty interested by it. It's not something that the White House is touching, but there is this new book by Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns from the New York Times, and it makes it sound like, the, uh, it, uh, according to their telling of the last year and a half's events, uh, the vice president's team keeps complaining to White House officials who tell them basically, just cut it out. We don't care. <laughs> and so if that's the case, I, I don't know what kind of a change uh, they could really make. Like, if that's if that's the way the Biden team wants to handle them, keep them at arm's length, tell them to be quiet, then that's probably going to be the way that things go. But it's not like you can drop the vice president <laughs> just mid, mid-term. No, I mean, it's a duly elected constitutional officer. Peter, yesterday we learned that the White House press secretary, with whom you spar on a regular basis— has once again contracted COVID. This is her second bout of COVID. 
I know that she's fully vaccinated. I would guess you might know that she's boosted as well. This is now round two. She had COVID in the fall. Now she has it again. That really wasn't all that long ago. What do we know about her condition? Uh, She says that she has mild symptoms, but the craziest thing about the timing of all this, and we hope that she's okay and that her uh, young kids and husband are okay as well, uh, but it is the second time that she's tested positive right before one of these international trips. Um, And it was a big surprise when we were sitting in Italy in October when she told us that she wasn't going to be able to come because she tested positive for COVID. And then again yesterday, we were on a bus at Dulles sitting on the tarmac right uh, ready to leave when she posted that she was positive again. So uh, she's she's missing out on some of these trips, but um, that's just kind of the way of the world. Yeah, and apparently she's doing fine, mild symptoms, but she's isolating out of caution. And I don't know if you saw it, Peter, but the satirical site, the Babylon Bee, has an item that you and Jen Psaki have announced your engagement uh, because sort of the frenemy thing has turned into – I guess something more in the world of satire. And I just want to get your official response and confirmation that indeed you are still happily married to our colleague here at Fox News. Jen is still happily married to a a man uh, who is not you. And this is, in fact, fake news. I I think uh, that that second part is all correct. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Peter Ducey, uh, obviously a very significant trip ahead The president landing in a matter of minutes in Brussels, a packed agenda with maybe that little donut hole of time unexplained on Friday, which might, might, might be a presidential quick visit into Ukraine. We'll see. Peter Ducey will be covering this trip, covering this president over in Europe over the next couple of days. Peter, stay safe. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will talk again soon. All right. Thank you, Guy. Talk soon. That's Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent, live in Brussels, Belgium. As we begin this Wednesday edition of The Guy Benson Show, more on that internal palace drama and uh, some of the finger-pointing back and forth. The details are pretty wild. When we come back, stay with us. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. And if you're listening on the broadcast, you might recognize this hit by Madonna, Vogue. And there's a tie-in to the White House intrigue that we actually touched on moments ago with Peter Ducey. There's this new book coming out by some New York Times reporters that continues to explain and lay out the tensions between the president's staff and the vice president's staff in the Biden administration. And Politico has some of those details today. Tensions between Vice President Kamala Harris and President Joe Biden and their teams began before the inauguration and involved not just complicated issues like mass migration, but cover photos of glossy magazines. In the two weeks before Inauguration Day, Harris dispatched aides to address the upcoming issue of Vogue. So she was going to be on the cover of Vogue, which she was. And the leaked cover photo, which featured the incoming vice president in Converse sneakers and skinny pants, 
was, quote, an approachable but less than grand depiction of the incoming vice president. This according to the book. Harris had been expecting a different photo to be used of her, one that ultimately made the digital cover of the story. Quote, this is from the book, Harris was wounded. She felt belittled by the magazine, asking aides, would Vogue depict another world leader this way? Can I just pause to say these are peak Democrat problems? Oh, the one photo of your glamour shoot for the cover of Vogue as a vice president wasn't exactly the photo that you were expecting. What a what a tough life. And when Republicans make the cover of any of these magazines, it's like, you know, a cartoon of them as the devil. She's upset because she was pictured in sneakers, which she must have put on her own body, by the way. She knew they were taking photos of her with the sneakers on. Then they used the photo and she was big mad about it, going around complaining to people. She had one of her top aides contact the editor of Vogue, Anna Wintour, to convey the displeasure of the vice president. Apparently, Wintour said back the whole point was to make her relatable. (laughs) Well, that's part of the problem. She isn't. She's phony and unrelatable because of stuff like this. So they were trying to help her. That's the thing. They were trying to help her, and she viewed it as an affront. The incoming chief of staff of the vice president at the time, according to the report, was caught off, caught off guard by how angry Harris had become within her circle about this. Also in the book, you have this, quote, the vice president worried that Biden's staff looked down on her. She fixates on real and perceived snubs around the West Wing that others find tedious. At one point, she dispatched her chief of staff to talk to a top Biden advisor to convey that she was upset that the White House staff would not all stand up for her, Harris, when she entered a room. She felt disrespected. Like, why aren't people taking me seriously? She seems, why aren't people sort of portraying me in a way that's super serious? Well, I mean, I think that her own performance speaks to that. The way that she treats people speaks to that. We actually have an exclusive response from the vice president. Cut 21. The significance of the passage of time. It is time for us to do what we have been doing. There is great significance to the passage of time. And that time is every day. (laughs) You could put that quote on the cover of Vogue. We got to take a break. We'll keep covering it because it's delicious and juicy, but we'll get to other important topics when we come back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Very pleased to have you along for the Guy Benson Show each and every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free on demand. With us now, Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post and FoxNews.com. And as of a few months ago, a Floridian 
having abandoned New York. She's now even trash-talking New York pizza, I see, on social media uh, in favor of, I guess, a Florida slice that she was able to pick up. Carol, have you gone fully native in Florida at this point? (laughs) Hi, Guy. Thanks so much for having me. I I have to just say, I've been actually trash-talking New York slices for a while because I think pizza in New York has really fallen off and is really coasting on its reputation. And I've been saying it for years on social media. I could point to old tweets. You'll see. Well, and I've maintained that New Jersey has the best pizza, and you've come after me for that. I mean, let's not get crazy. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm I'm not crazy. I'm crazy guy. I'm just correct. I I like to be correct on the show. And sometimes, you know, facts don't feel about – go ahead. (laughs) No, I'd say I I think New Jersey and New York face the same issue, which is that many, many Italians have left these areas and have moved to the glorious state of Florida, which is why their pizza is on the way up and New York (laughs) and New Jersey is on the way down. Okay. You know, we will just – Agree to disagree on New Jersey pizza for now because – and we might come back to Florida-related issues a little bit later in our conversation. But before we do that, you have a really interesting mm-hmm. column that you've written uh, at the New York Post. And the headline is, Think Twice Before You Punish a Russian. And we've touched on this a little bit on the show. I'm extremely hypercritical of Vladimir Putin and this war and the war crimes right. that he's carrying out. Uh, I am fully on the side of Ukraine. I think that repercussions have been significant and should continue to be. Arming the Ukrainians, devastating sanctions, more of all of that, I'm on board for it. One thing that Mm -hmm. has given me a little bit of pause and concerned me is this sort of cancel culture-esque stampede of the global mob, and I'm sort of part of this mob in the sense that I'm hyper anti-Kremlin and anti-Moscow, but to find Mm -hmm. ways to punish and ostracize Russian people, including people of Russian descent or Russians who aren't even Putin fans or have even Mm -hmm. condemned the war publicly. And I know that this is personal for you. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to write this column. So I I think that the main thing is that people need to remember that people in Russia are not free. And I think as Americans, we just just kind of associate our experience with everybody else. Like if we're able to speak out against the leadership, if we're able to protest in the street and not be arrested, um, then everybody else probably is too. But that's just not the case. And still, even today, there are so many countries around the world where that's just not the case. And Russia is a prime example of that, where the information that they get is extremely limited and um, all through the prism of pro-Kremlin news. Uh, they don't get outside information. They don't get um, a, a wide variety of uh, news programming, for example. They get only told what the Putin people want them to know. Uh, so you have a country full of people with very little information and who, even if they manage to get the information from other sources still wouldn't be able to do anything about it. They would, if they protest, they're arrested. If they speak out, they can be in really big trouble. They can risk um, a lot, not just for themselves, but for their families. So if you see, you know, an artist or an actor or a ballerina from Russia not speaking out about this, it could very well be that their family back in Russia would be in danger if they did. So I think people need to really understand that. And not um, think that everybody across the world gets to be free like we do. 
Yeah, and we've seen this manifested in people boycotting businesses, for example, in the West owned by mm-hmm. Russian people or even Ukrainians right. because there's a right. Russian reference in the name of the business or something like that. We've seen yeah. it, you know, athletes and other performers and artists, mm-hmm. as you referenced. They're also taking the names of Russians off of things that have been named after Russians through history, people yeah. who've been dead mm-hmm. for years. I don't understand that. I also saw something that was named after Karl Marx, and I would never want to name anything after Karl Marx, aside from maybe a monument to to suffering and misery, because he, he mm-hmm. was, uh, I think, had a very evil ideology that he was uh, largely responsible for promulgating. But he was not Russian, right? He was not Russian. Right. The Soviets embraced his ideology, right. but he was not Russian. But mm-hmm. they're taking his name down. It just seems like this weird feeding frenzy that doesn't yeah. actually achieve much. I'm in favor of trying to actually achieve things against the Russian right. government. This, yeah, and this absolutely won't. So I, I was born in Russia, and I grew up in what's called the Russian community in Brooklyn. But the truth is, I was one of the very few people that was actually born in Russia. And my father's from Ukraine. Uh, my parents had met in Turkmenistan. That's a, During the Soviet times, people were displaced and sent all over the place to work. Um, so both of my parents were sent to Turkmenistan to work, where they met and had me, etc. Um, but the thing was that most of the people I grew up with were not from Russia, even though we all spoke Russian to each other. And even though we, we were shorthanded as Russians, we called each other Russian or we would say, you know, what's your favorite Russian restaurant? But my favorite Russian restaurant in, is called Tatiana, and it's owned by a woman named Tatiana from Ukraine. And she's been getting these hate phone calls. Uh, she, she forwarded me a voicemail that she had, which was not – I mean, there was no direct threat, but it was certainly menacing. It was like, change the cuisine of your restaurant, change the name. Um, and she's from Ukraine, and she came here in the late 70s. So people who are trying to menace That's Russians so and ending up hurting Ukrainians. Yeah. And I don't understand, like, what's the point of that exactly? I mean, I, I understand being upset at the Russian government and at the Kremlin mm-hmm. and feeling powerless to do too much about it. And so I guess people find ways that seem accessible in their own lives to, right. I guess, stand up for something that they believe in. But if you're not going to think it through and you're going to just punish people or harass people because of some association that you have in your mind, that seems – really like a a terrible thing to do to people and counterproductive. Yeah, completely ignorant. And, you know, again, hurting the people that you're saying that you want to protect. Um, A lot of us, I have family still in Ukraine who just left like two weeks ago. Um, I still have family in Russia. And a lot of the people that are being harassed, have family in Ukraine, even if they might be Russian, um, have family in Russia who they they can't, again, um, speak out too much, lest their family in Russia be harmed. Uh, so the people that are, are doing this harassing are just really setting back their own cause. It really makes no sense. Meanwhile, Carol Markowitz, let's shift back to the home front and to Florida, the state that is now your home, and this interesting standoff between the governor, who's a popular governor, who appears to be on track for a at least somewhat comfortable re-election, Ron DeSantis, and one of the most well-known companies in Florida, Disney. Of course, Disney World is down there. And there's this LGBT bill that has been very controversial. We've talked about it here. I have sort of a nuanced take on it on balance. I oppose it, but not for the sort of hysterical reasons that a lot of the opponents are out there 
talking about and chanting about. There was a walkout at Disney, which was blessed you know, by the leadership of the company for the employees who wanted to walk out. Then yesterday I saw a letter was sent by right-leaning Disney employees saying, like, they don't feel welcome or valued at the company, and they don't feel the same ability to speak out uh, based on what they believe in because the company is putting their thumb on the scale and abandoning neutrality on culture war issues, and they feel like it's kind of a a hostile environment at Disney for people who are center-right. I've seen responses from people saying, oh, well, they can suck it up and go work somewhere else if they want to. But what only one side is allowed to make a ruckus or raise a complaint about corporate values. I just wonder, being on the ground in Florida, how does it feel? Are people talking about this? Is this going to kind of blow over? Because I, I don't know if it's really in either party's interest, meaning Disney corporate and the governor, to have a total massive blow up over this. Right. And I don't think that they will necessarily. I I think that the loud um, fringe in in the Disney organization are making noise about this, but I I do think they're the minority. From what I've heard from parents in Florida, the shocking thing to them is that a law like this is necessary. They they, they don't understand why uh, somebody under third grade would discuss sexual orientation or gender in the first place. And they... I, from what everybody I've spoken to, and I'm not only talking about conservatives here, welcome this kind of law. And the thing is, I'm pretty much a squish on trans issues. A trans adult to me, I will respect your pronouns. I will call you whatever you want. Uh, but for kids, it's, it's a completely different ballgame. And the fact that it's starting younger and younger, the indoctrination or uh, just kind of movement towards accepting trans kids. Um, I, I really, I, I think that it's wrong. And I think that kids are very easily led and very easily confused. And this shouldn't be in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, and third grade. And I don't think this is a tough call. Um, I, I think that it, it could have been a clearer law. I think maybe it should have been more specific because from the laws I read it right now, I, I don't know that leftist teachers won't still do whatever they feel like it and say that they didn't, you know, they follow the letter of this law. Um, so, while I could have issues with the wording in the law, I think that it was overall the right thing to do. Yeah, I think I have no problem, and I've said this with the K through three part, uh, that some of the other vague wording on other elements that have concerned me, and I've I've made that point here, and I've sort of fleshed out my argument. But the the part of it, the component of it that you just referenced, I don't have an issue with. And what's interesting, Carol, I don't know if you saw this story. It was out of Texas where a school district or an elementary school had plans for Pride Week for elementary schoolers. And during Pride Week, one of the things that was sort of on this document that was leaked was an exhortation for the teachers to make clear that anything that's said in the classroom within this sharing space, these are elementary school students on, you know, LGBT pride related issues were to they were supposed to tell the students this stays within the classroom. This is, you know, this is respecting people's privacy and their confidence. And we're not going to be telling other people about what's said here. And parents said, well, hang on. These are our elementary school kids. You wanted what? Some sort of, you know, sharing time on LGBT pride programming for our second and third graders. And then you wanted to tell our second and third graders not to 
even inform us that this stuff was happening at all in the classroom, that seems uh, like a violation and something that we can't support. I know the government of Texas is now getting involved there, but we've seen people on the left saying, well, actually, this is good. This type of thing should happen, and parents don't necessarily have a right to know that it's happening because that can – and they'll make their arguments that kids need a safe space, and if they don't get it at home, they can get it. So you kind of have some people arguing this law is totally unnecessary, this type of thing isn't happening, and this is just like a punitive thing. And then when there's an example, albeit another state, of this kind of thing perhaps percolating – a lot. It seems like there's like a pretty significant overlap of people who then say, actually, that kind of programming in elementary schools is good and we're going to defend it. And right. I think there's a tension there, Carol. Yeah. I mean, we've seen it happen with CRT also. It's like CRT right. is not being taught in, in uh, K through 12. And then when presented with examples of it being taught in K through 12, the argument becomes, well, it's actually good that it's being taught in K through 12. You really can't have it both ways. Um, that's, again, why I think this law makes sense to me, because it's a preventative measure. Maybe it's not happening in Florida schools yet, but, you know, all of this kind of stuff, uh, all this wokeness in schools, it spreads and it's inevitable that it would spread to Florida schools. And I don't mind the legislature taking up the issue before it does. And so the, the idea that parents need to be kept out of any element of the classroom is scary to me. It doesn't have to be something um, about, you know, uh, gender issues or race issues or any of it. I, I don't want I want to know what my kids are learning in all the subjects that, you know, we don't have where they like don't tell don't tell your parents you're learning about this multiplication. You know, it's always going to be something that you don't want your kids to know about when when they get told not to tell their parents. So. I, I think transparency has to be what we all fight for. And I think a lot of these school problems that we've noticed over the last two years are something we can no longer ignore. Well, I will be fully transparent in reiterating that I think that you've really yeah. lost the plot if you are now preferring Florida pizza to New York pizza or especially New Jersey pizza. And we'll just have to Guys. hash that out uh, <laughs> another time. I mean, I we can have a pizza yeah. off at some point. I'd be totally Come down visit. for it. Let's go. I I will be in Florida next week, actually. So maybe we Amazing. can uh, we can chat offline about that. <laughs> yes, no, I'll, I'll take a free pizza from you anytime. I'll put in some extra time on the Peloton. Uh, Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post Thank and FoxNews.com. Always an interesting conversation, and we really appreciate it. Thanks, Carol. Thanks so much. All right, we will take a quick break. When we come back, an unendorsement from the former president Donald Trump in a major Senate race. He has reversed himself. We'll tell you about it, and I have some thoughts next. Guy Benson will be right back. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. Picking up on something that we talked a little bit about yesterday with Josh Krasauer, I just want to bring you an update from Alabama and the Senate race down there. There's a heated Republican primary. The winner of that primary is very, very, very likely to be a United States senator. And former President Donald Trump had endorsed Congressman Mo Brooks. I mean, ages ago, right out of the gate, Mo Brooks was at the January 6th rally. He's been very, very, very Trumpy and close with the president. So he got the endorsement Mo Brooks did for Senate. And then what's happened is. As the race has unfolded, 
we have seen the people of Alabama not really rushing to support Mo Brooks. And based on multiple polls, he is now in third place, could finish a distant third place. So President Trump has now unendorsed him. Right? He had the whole complete and total endorsement thing, and now he doesn't. And what Trump is pinning this on, he's pretending that it's because Mo Brooks, of all people, has gone, quote, woke on the 2020 election. Right. And by that, Trump means he's not willing to completely, you know, triple and quadruple down on the election lie that he was totally cheated and Trump really won and the whole thing was stolen or whatever, which isn't true. Mo Brooks had been asked a question about it. and He said we should really look forward and move forward and not look backwards. And Trump is saying, oh, he's gone. He's gone woke. Now, here's the thing. Brooks made that statement back in August it was months ago. That was in August. Then we had September, October, November, December, January, February, March. Like half a year later, Trump has finally decided, oh, that comment is the reason why he has to unendorse Mo Brooks. And I think everyone understands that's not true. That's just ridiculous spin. He's not dredging up some months old statement to say, oh, that's disqualifying because you're not going behind the whole 2020 election conspiracy it's because mo brooks is losing trump cannot handle losing whether it's himself or someone else so now he wants a do-over so he's not embarrassed because some of his endorsements in republican primaries aren't going very well right now so oh never mind your endorsement's gone for a made-up reason i'm gonna go with someone else there's a loyalty question there there's a judgment question there and do republican voters want this kind of drama forever moving forward that's a question we should be thinking about live from the most powerful city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative kai benson show it's a brand new hour on the guy benson show thank you very much for listening i'm your host guy benson our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free on demand every single day. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. The Dow had a rough day, closing down 448 points up on Wall Street, ending at 34,358. Joining us now from Capitol Hill is U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee, She's a member of the Judiciary Committee in the upper chamber, and they are extremely busy this week with the confirmation hearings of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, the nominee of President Biden to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Senator Blackburn, it's great to have you back here on the show. It is good to be with you. Thank you so much. My impression of this nominee is that she is a winning personality, a nice person uh, with a great family and a nice life story. She's smart. I think based on her resume, she is definitely qualified for the job. She's also a progressive who says some things that are appealing maybe to conservatives, but based on her record would be a judge and a justice on the Supreme Court who would be quite progressive and would kind of follow in the footsteps of Breyer and and uh, some others like Justice Sotomayor, for example. And That's kind of my overall thought on her. I wonder after 
what, day three or two and a half days of this process, what you think of the nominee. I think that's a pretty good assessment. Uh, You're spot on there. When you look at her record, the choices she made in private practice, her work as a public defender, her work as a um, sentencing commission co-chair, and then, of course, going to the district court and about a year now on the appellate court, what you do see is a pattern of going left on her decisions, and she is squarely out of the left, the progressive wing of the party. Yeah, and and I, therefore, would not be terribly excited about what will likely be her body of work in jurisprudence as a Supreme Court justice. I also wonder, objecting to someone's worldview or judicial philosophy, although she hasn't really defined her judicial philosophy uh, under questioning on that point, is that sufficient reason to vote against a nominee? I know for a long time, people who had strong disagreements with nominees would vote for them anyway if they were qualified. It seems like those days might be gone. Uh, So uh, how do you view that question? The way I view it is by looking at her record of work and some of the issues that I've needed answers to, we've not been able to get them. Uh, To say, well, I did public defender work. I had no choice. That's why I decided to represent some Gitmo detainees. That is not a sufficient answer. Why would you choose Gitmo detainees for pro bono work instead of helping veterans or helping single moms that don't have access to ca- to counsel. Uh, when you look at how she has been soft on sentencing child exploitation cases, going below the minimum, not the maximum, but the minimum recommended sentence, that causes me pause. Likewise, why did she write in an opinion that the 1,561 federal detainees in the D.C. Circuit should have been let go on compassionate release during COVID. And she moved forward to release a heroin dealer uh, or a fentanyl dealer and a bank robber that was addicted to heroin and then a murderer who had killed a U.S. Marshal. Um, Likewise, with CRT, she serves on the board of the Georgetown Day School. She has praised uh, in writing the benefits of a progressive education. That school has a program called Woke Kindergarten for five-year-olds. This is something that is outside the mainstream of American society. I do not talk to many moms who think that five-year-olds should be taught that they can choose their gender. One question that you asked uh, the nominee, Judge Jackson, last evening got a fair amount of attention, not just your question, but the way she answered it. Here's what that exchange sounded like, cut 13. Can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. You can't? Not in this context. I'm not a biologist. 
I'm not a biologist, so some people quickly pointed out, well, if she thinks it's a matter of biology, that might at least be on the right track. But she didn't want to go down the path for a number of reasons. It was in some ways based on sort of woke lexicon and the ideology on her side. It was a bit of a of a trap question. She didn't want to go there and define woman. I wonder, Senator, what were you hoping to hear from her on that question? How would you answer the same question? One of the things I did was to go through the VMI case that Justice Ginsburg wrote the opinion on it. That's what led up to this. And Justice Ginsburg, in her writing, had said that there were enduring differences between men and women, male and female. And that was in her decision on that case. And I thought that what I would get from Judge Jackson was an agreement with uh, Justice Ginsburg. That didn't come, and she wanted to punt this. And see, it's really frustrating when you're trying to do your due diligence, ask questions, get answers on the record for someone who's going to have a lifetime appointment. So I pivoted and I said, well, you know, can you define the word woman? Uh, thinking that she would say female, I am a woman, some something of that nature, and she didn't. So I think it was pretty surprising, not only to me, but to others, that she chose not to answer the question uh, because she had punted on that VMI decision. Does it take a biologist to define what a woman is? Uh, you're, no. I, to my knowledge, Senator, no. you're not a biologist. How would you describe what a woman is? A woman is a female, and there are differences between male and female. And uh, she could have pointed to herself and said, I am a woman. Uh, that That would have been fine. Um, But that is not what she chose to do. And one of the things I think is important here, Guy, is that we have seen these nominees for the court become uh, politicized. We have seen them become very rehearsed. When they come in before us, they will choose not to answer questions. And what we need to know is what is their worldview? How do they make their decisions? Uh, What do they hold as their value system? And one of the reasons that that is important is because many times when people have letters of recommendation that are coming from other judges or people that they've worked with, they talk about an individual's character or their family or uh, the combination of their God-given talents and their experiences and their education and their drive and determination. And talk about that as helping to make someone uh, really appropriate for, for the bench. These are things that are determinants in in the mind of many people who currently sit on the bench. So it's appropriate that we ask these questions, how she would deal with parental rights, how she would deal mm-hmm. with questions of culture. I want to play for you a soundbite. This was a question and an answer with Dick Durbin, who is the committee chairman on the Democratic side. And in cut 20, he suggested that the Republicans on your committee 
have come very close to being out of bounds when it comes to comportment and civility during this hearing and some of the questions and topics that they've been uh, broaching and discussing. Here's what he said. Cut 20. Like the, the line of question, even raising it with her is like, is it out of the bounds and we lost some sort of decorum that we're keeping in that room? Or are you not going to go that far? We were perilously on the edge of losing it, but uh, I think it, it ended quickly. Perilously on the edge. I wonder what you make of that, Senator. There's been some grandstanding that always happens uh, from senators in general at these hearings. There's been some lines of criticism or questions that some people might object to. But when it comes to, you know, comportment or civility, I cannot believe that anyone in the press who was part of the Kavanaugh mob or certainly anyone on that committee on the other side of the dais who lived through that and was part of that and egged it on could possibly, with a straight face, express concerns about the tone of this hearing. Chairman Durbin's uh, comments have, uh, of course, let me say this, he is protected by the liberal media, and this nominee is protected by the liberal media. And, of course, they tried to say that they were perfectly within their rights during the Kavanaugh and Barrett hearings, which anyone who watched that knows differently. The current vice president would not let Chuck Grassley give his opening statement. She immediately started to object the minute he opened his mouth. And we have a job to do. That job is to review this record of someone who is going to have a lifetime appointment on the U.S. Supreme Court. People want to see a constitutionalist judge. They want to see somebody who is going to be even-handed, has the right demeanor, who is not going to politicize cases that are coming before them. They want to see somebody who goes to the Constitution first, the rule of law second, and makes their decision. They want them to depend on the Constitution, not current events. They want them to look at the rule of law, not the latest political campaign. So we're completely within our rights. But see, here's the thing. The left will stand there and they will grandstand and they will say, you can't do this. You can't ask her hard questions. Well, on behalf of the people of Tennessee, I have to ask her hard questions. Senator Marshall Blackburn of Tennessee, I want to quickly get in here a Fox News alert with just a little bit of breaking news. President Joe Biden has landed in Brussels, Belgium I'm watching on the news channel. The stairs have been wheeled up to the side of Air Force One. The president will be emerging momentarily. He is on the ground for this NATO summit in Belgium. He'll also be traveling to Poland. There's some speculation that he might actually cross over into Ukrainian territory at some point during the course of this visit. I just wonder, Senator, what you are hoping to see and hear from the president uh, during this trip in Europe, which seems pretty consequential, and perhaps how you view this from your perch on another major committee, the Armed Services Committee in the Senate. Yes, and, you know, whether you're listening to Ukraine's President Zelensky or their ambassador to the U.S. or others in Ukraine, people that are – and leaders in NATO, 
They want Joe Biden. They see this as the window of opportunity for him to come in and be the leader of the free world. They want him to stand strong for freedom. They want him to be resolute. And they're frustrated that he does not do that. He hasn't taken the opportunity to do that. So, We'll see what he does after he comes down those stairs, but hopefully he is going to say, Russia, you need to get out of there. NATO, we're going to be with you. Ukraine, we're going to be sure you have what you need to protect yourselves. And the president has now come through that door, and he is walking down the steps from Air Force One onto Belgian soil, and we'll see how the next few days play out. U.S. Senator Marshall Blackburn, a Republican of Tennessee, I know that you are particularly busy this week. We're grateful that you spent some time here with us. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. And we'll be right back after this break on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. You know, one more thought on this Supreme Court hearing. And I think it's pretty clear where this is headed. She'll be voted out of committee, probably party line, and she'll be confirmed almost party line. Maybe one or two Republicans will join. And so this portion of the process is for asking questions. And some of the questions being asked, I think, are a little silly. I think some of them are relevant and good. You could argue that some of it is sort of showboating, grandstanding. That's what senators and members of Congress do all the time. It's actually very normal to see tendentious lines of argument, trying to get a nominee to slip up, getting a little hostile with them, showing off for the cameras, maybe dabbling in some demagoguery, not being totally fair, you know, in in the framing of certain issues. This is what happens as a matter of course in these types of hearings. And it's not because the Republicans are the ones asking the tougher or more hostile questions this time. We've seen literally both sides do this. Also, don't do both sidesism. No, actually, there is both sidesism on this. It's gotten much, much, much worse in recent decades because overwhelmingly of the Democrats and the way that they've conducted themselves. And while I don't agree with or endorse every line of questioning that we're seeing here, With Judge Jackson, this notion and the complaint, whether it's from Dick Durbin or the New York Times had a story talking about the the questions about the child porn sentencing. And we discussed that with Andy McCarthy yesterday. He thinks that's mostly just a misfire, an unfair attack against her. Whether you agree with that or not, asking her about her rulings, her sentences as a judge, her recommendations, her policies, the things that she's pursued in this realm of our justice system in a professional capacity, that is the definition of inbounds. We're not even close to beyond the pale. But the New York Times saying, oh, this is this is an echo of QAnon conspiracy theories. Dick Durbin, oh, they're perilously close to going over the edge. I've seen pearl clutching and hand-wringing on social media from journalists and from progressive activists about how shocking and appalling the mistreatment is by these Republican senators of this nominee. Give me a break. 
again, I don't love every bit of it, but this is, if anything, notably, strikingly ordinary in terms of the tone and the tenor and the content of this hearing. And I really cannot stomach the phony outrage from anyone who had anything to do with the Kavanaugh mob, for example, or who egged them on or amplified some of those lies. They're still lying about him to this day, by the way, based on no evidence. So, I mean, just like, give me a break. I do not want to hear it. You have no credibility. Uh, It's just a lot of heat and shouting. Ridiculous. But that's D.C. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Midway point of the show. Midway point of the week. It is the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. I want to read to you a column by Brett Stevens of the New York Times about this Iran deal that is rumored. And there might be a hopeful update from my perspective on that, about the rumors, in a moment. But I think this is a thoughtful piece by Stevens that is quite even-handed in his opposition to what we're hearing about this deal. And again, a lot of the details we don't know. The Iranians know them. The Chinese and the Russians know them. Our Congress does not because they have been cut out of the process intentionally by the Biden team, a number of whom have left the team in protest because of the extent of the capitulation and the giveaways to Iran that have been rumored, whispered, reported, etc. Now, this is, in fact, so even handed in some ways that I think it might be too fair. Maybe more so than I would be, given the stakes here. But then again, Brett Stevens is also writing for a New York Times uh, audience, right? So when that's the New York Times audience, you maybe need to couch things certain ways. But overall, I think this is a strong column entitled, A New Iran Deal Leaves Us Meeker and Weaker. Stevens writes, what does President Biden think he will get out of a new nuclear deal with Iran? A year ago, the answer seemed reasonably clear to the administration. Tehran had responded to Donald Trump's decision to walk away from the original 2015 deal, known as the JCPOA, by enriching uranium to ever higher levels of purity, bringing it increasingly close to a nuclear bomb, or at least the capability to build one quickly. Barring a new deal that put limits on enrichment, Iran seemed destined to cross the nuclear finish line sooner rather than later, hence the urgency of a deal. But today we live in a different world. This is Brett Stevens writing at The New York Times. It's a world in which Russia and China, parties to both the JCPOA and current negotiations, are definitely not our well-wishers. And a world in which Saudi Arabia and the UAE wouldn't even answer Joe Biden's phone calls in the midst of the greatest geopolitical crisis of the 21st century. Maybe the administration needs to think through the broader implications of a new deal a little more carefully before it signs on again. So far, that isn't happening. The deal is said to be mostly finalized, barring last-minute haggling over whether the United States will remove the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, which Washington has said is responsible for the killing of hundreds of Americans, from the sanctioned list of terrorist organizations. Asked earlier this month whether Russia's invasion of Ukraine would affect the nuclear negotiations, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, was definitive, quote, These things are totally different and are just not in any way linked together. 
but they are linked together, writes Stevens, in ways large and small, tactical and strategic. The United States isn't even negotiating directly with Tehran. The Iranians wouldn't allow Americans into the room, and the administration incredibly agreed, but is instead relying on its intermediaries, which, as I mentioned, include the Russians primarily. And how are those intermediaries doing, Stevens asks. Quote, I'm absolutely sincere in this regard when I say that Iran got much more than it could expect, much more, said Russians, uh, Russia's top diplomat at the negotiations in an interview earlier this month. Quote, our Chinese friends were also very efficient and useful co-negotiators. We played you that soundbite on this show. That's the Russian lead negotiator speaking on behalf of the United States in some ways, which is insane, boasting about what a successful deal this is for Iran, how much the regime in Tehran is going to get, and how helpful the Chinese have been in the process. Stevens goes on. Maybe he was exaggerating, speaking of this Russian negotiator, but with or without the deal, Moscow will be able to build nuclear power plants in Iran, irrespective of the sanctions over the war in Ukraine. And Beijing, which in 2021 signed a 25-year, $400 billion strategic partnership with Tehran, will be able to conduct lucrative business in Tehran with little concern for U.S. sanctions. But what about the nuclear deal's upside? Last year, Blinken promised an agreement would be longer and stronger, hinting that it would seek to extend some of the JCPOA's sunset provisions that were set to expire in the next decade, as well as place limits on Iran's testing of ballistic missiles. But it isn't clear the New Deal will meet either goal. At a minimum, it will likely extend Iran's breakout time, the time it needs to acquire sufficient enriched uranium for a bomb, from as little as three weeks to about six months. It would also establish an intrusive nuclear inspection regime, and give future diplomacy more time to work and forestall, for now, a nuclear crisis in the Middle East while the world's attention is engaged elsewhere. This is not nothing, and should the deal go through, the administration will work hard to make the case that it is a good enough answer for a problem to which every other solution is worse. It will also stress that all options are on the table should Iran choose to go for a bomb. That's sort of the, uh, the best-case scenario. I would also just add myself as my side note, there is no evidence that we've heard that this deal that's being discussed is longer or stronger. It is shorter and weaker by virtually every account that I've read. So the promise at the start of this process from Blinken is not going to be kept. Not longer and stronger, just the opposite. And that's the point that Brett Stevens concludes with here. He says, except nobody in the region seems to believe that line from the administration or any other U.S. security assurances. Hence, the phone call snub. He's referring to Saudi and other Gulf state leaders just not taking phone calls from Biden during the Ukraine crisis on on fuel, on energy. Reaching a kick-the-can-down-the-road agreement may seem like a diplomatic victory to the State Department, but it's a strategic defeat when it does little more than delay a crisis for the future in exchange for strengthening our adversaries in the present. I think that's such a crucial line. Let me read it again. It's a strategic defeat when the deal does little more than delay a crisis for the future in exchange for strengthening 
our adversaries in the present. Tehran attacked Iraq with ballistic missiles earlier this month and, through its Houthi proxies, launched missile and drone strikes at Abu Dhabi in January. What can Iran's neighbors expect from it when its coffers are refreshed with tens of billions of dollars in oil revenues, free from sanctions? Though the administration and its friends will fiercely deny it, the principal geopolitical challenge the United States faces today is the perception shared by friends and foes alike that we are weak, diffident, distracted, divided. The heroic resistance that Ukraine has put up against Russia, bolstered by American military aid and the power of our sanctions, has helped shift that perception at least somewhat. But we are still far from achieving any kind of victory here, much less gaining the upper hand against a new access of autocracy. The Biden administration urgently needs to telegraph strength, an Iran deal that leaves us even weaker and meeker than the previous deal accomplishes the opposite at a moment when we cannot afford another reversal. So Stevens, I think, being scrupulously fair to the administration and some best case scenarios that they would argue on behalf of any accord or agreement here, ultimately concludes that this entire process, and he's he's right, makes us look hopelessly weak. The fact that we're not even negotiating for ourselves, we're negotiating through the Russians who are like, you know, doing 360 dunks out there in the press about how amazing this is for China and Russia and Iran. They do not have our best interests at heart. That makes us look very weak. The idea that this would be stronger and longer than the last deal is dubious at best. And again, we don't know yet because it's still secret, at least to America, it's still secret. But all the indications point that it will not be stronger or longer. It will be the opposite. And what it would do under the best case scenario is slightly delay Iran getting a nuclear weapon temporarily while enshrining their nuclear program as legitimized through the international community, while giving them tens of billions of dollars in sanctions relief. And they would get that bomb eventually anyway. So we're getting like a little short-term reprieve at best, punting this problem, a nuclear Iran, to another president down the line, to the world down the line. And in the process, you are enriching and empowering not just Iran, but other enemies of freedom in the West. In what world is that a good trade-off? It's so bad... It's so weak that I will draw to your attention this story in Politico that I saw today. Headline, Dems start questioning Biden administration's Iran nuclear talks. Some in President Biden's own party now joining GOP critics and raising doubts about his path to achieving a little recognized campaign promise, which was to just undo the Trump thing and go back to the Obama thing. Just worse, as it turns out. We told you about a dozen House Democrats who've already expressed concerns. Now there are some others as well. I'll just read quickly from this piece. Bipartisan skepticism of President Joe Biden's efforts to revive the Iran nuclear deal is emerging on Capitol Hill as his administration races to put the finishing touches on a pact that was left in tatters by Donald Trump. And I would argue for good reason. 
Trump made the right call on this. While Republicans have been airing their concerns more loudly, some top Democrats are beginning to openly express reservations about public reports outlining details of the new agreement, which would include lifting some sanctions on Tehran. Their doubts follow warnings from the administration and their officials in closed-door briefings that Iran is closer than ever to producing enough material for a nuclear weapon. Uh, So by all means, let's give them a bunch of money. And a bunch of sanctions relief on their terrorism activities, which is what is rumored to be in this deal. Quote, the negotiations aren't complete, but there are still major obstacles remaining, said Senator Ben Cardin, who is the top foreign relations committee. Or a top foreign relations committee member. Who opposed the 2015 version of this, as did 60 percent of Congress, 6-0. A a large bipartisan majority was against Obama's deal. They pushed it through anyway as not a treaty. And it looks like that's the direction Biden's going to head here. But Cardin, again, sounds very skeptical, very concerned about what might be in an even worse deal this time, as he should be. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of the segment some potential hopeful indications that comes in the form of a soundbite, a statement from Ned Price, who is the State Department spokesman under Secretary Blinken and President Biden. And he said there's absolutely no guarantee that this deal is done or that it's imminent or that it will even happen at all. Here's what he said in Cut 22. An agreement of this sort is neither imminent uh, nor is it certain. And so that is precisely why uh, for the better part of a year, Uh, We have been uh, preparing for either contingency, for either scenario. Neither imminent nor certain. I very much hope that is correct. I hope it's neither. And I certainly hope that we get to see it before there's any pen put to paper in a binding way for the United States and our taxpayer dollars flowing to this terror-supporting, anti-American, death-to-America regime which would get a bunch of money, a bunch of PR wins, some relieved sanctions and delisted, uh, you know, terrorist organizations, including the tip of their military spirit responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans. They would be off the hook. They would get relief. They would get a lot of money. They would be able to continue to use that money to not just pursue illegal weapons and nukes, but also to fund their mayhem across the world, especially in that region, to redouble their efforts as the number one state sponsor of terrorism in the world, according to our State Department. And in exchange, they would give us nothing. I know Brett Stevens in his column said it's not nothing. There would be inspectors and a tough inspection regime for a while, and it would push the can farther down the road in terms of the breakout time. So there would be like these these temporary restrictions, even more temporary than last time. That's that'd be the big thing that America would get. That'd be the big concession by Iran. And they get the store and their nuclear program and eventually the bomb. Well, we fill their coffers up and take the heat off their malign influence in a lot of different ways around the world. It's an issue that we are not going to let go of here on The Guy Benson Show because I know there's a lot of stuff in the news. We've got a war. We'll get to more on that coming up in the next hour. 
happening in Ukraine. We've got the Supreme Court hearings occurring right now, just steps from where I'm currently broadcasting from. There are plenty of things on the agenda right now. There's news overload. But this matters. So we're going to keep talking about it and focusing on it. But for now, we are up on a break. We'll take it and come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. It is the Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you tuning in every day. This next story very much falls under the category of woke tales. Woke tales. It comes in the form of an editorial by the editorial board of the Cavalier Daily, the student newspaper at the University of Virginia, which is uh, allegedly one of the better public universities in the country. And these are some of our journalists of tomorrow. And you'll be shocked to learn that they have some very, very scary thoughts on free speech. Again, these are First Amendment journalists. Headline from this editorial... Dangerous rhetoric is not entitled to a platform. Speech that threatens the lives of those on grounds, meaning on campus, is unjustifiable. So they write, talking about a number of free speech controversies on campus, quote, in looking at each of these instances, we as an editorial board found ourselves questioning what should be protected under the premise of diversity of thought, And more importantly, what values we choose to accept. For us, the answer is simple. And this is part of what's frightening. Their simple answer is very wrong. For us, the answer is simple. Hateful rhetoric is violent. And this is impermissible. This is the conflation of speech and violence that many on the left are embracing. And here's what they're all spun up about. Quote, a student organization recently announced its plans to host former Vice President Mike Pence this April to speak on campus. For Pence, gay couples signify a societal collapse. Black lives do not matter. Transgender individuals and immigrants do not deserve protection. And the pandemic should not be taken seriously. Uh, There are rebuttals to a lot of that scurrilous stuff that I don't have time for. Nevertheless, the university has accepted Pence's visit as an opportunity to hear from and engage Leaders and experts from a wide variety of fields and perspectives. And they say, no, this directly threatens the presence and lives of community members, and he shouldn't be allowed to speak. Vice President Pence showing up threatens lives. No, this is illiberal and shameful. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour. On this Wednesday edition of the Guy Benson Show, welcome in. I'm Guy Benson, your host. We air 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, Monday through Friday. We also have a podcast that is free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com is your one-stop shop for all that information, including that free podcast. GuyBensonShow.com. 
This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. The Taste of Finland is here in America, and it is growing and expanding by popular demand. Find out more and find out where it's sold near you at thelongdrink.com as they expand across the country. Thelongdrink.com, 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. Well, this is generally known as the happy hour, but the story I'm about to read to you is anything but happy or lighthearted. In fact, I would recommend that if you are sensitive to stories about intense warfare and human suffering, if maybe there are little kids around, this might not be the segment for you. That being said, I think it's important to bring you this information because, as we've said previously, the war in Ukraine is not hypothetical. Yes, it's far away. Yes, we see a lot of maps on our TV screens and we read about things and we debate what the U.S. should or should not do. But for everyday innocent people in Ukraine, this Russian invasion is a total nightmare. And what the Russians are doing is an outrage. It's not just an unjustified war. It is an unjustified war featuring a constant stream of war crimes, total warfare by the Russians, especially in certain cities where they are targeting civilians. They are not attempting to only seek military targets to attack. They've been bombing civilians in residential areas now for weeks, and we can't just avert our eyes and say, well, that's terrible and move on. We don't have to dwell on it constantly. Thank God we are living in relative safety and prosperity in the United States. But the details, the harrowing, gut-wrenching details of what's happening to the Ukrainian people, from time to time, I think it's important for us to look directly at them and grapple with them on a moral level, on a human level. There are some good indications coming out of Ukraine from a military standpoint. And perhaps we'll get into some of those tomorrow or Friday with some of our military experts, because this counteroffensive in the north by the Ukrainians seems to be bearing some fruit, pushing the Russians further back. There is a drumbeat of terrible news from the Russian perspective for the Kremlin on morale, on supplies, on losses. On casualties, I mean, it has been an absolute debacle for the Russians. But amid that debacle, they are still doing everything they can to break the spirit of Ukrainian cities and to take over parts of the country with their ultimate goal still apparently being to win the war overall. Now, whether that's realistic at this stage seems increasingly dubious, but the savagery has not been scaled back. It has been stepped up. And nowhere is that more apparent and more disgusting than the city of Mariupol, which is a very important strategic city from the Russian perspective, because if they can claim it, which they haven't yet, I mean, the heroic stand of that city has been amazing, even as they are being reduced to rubble. If the Russians take that city, they will have a land bridge, effectively, from the Donbass region, which is where this invasion began, down to Crimea, the region of Ukraine that Russia stole back in 2014, with basically no repercussions. 
That's why they are effectively happy to turn Mariupol into a parking lot, even if it's men, women, and children being slaughtered every day, which is what's happening, so long as the parking lot belongs to them. The Wall Street Journal chronicles what's happening in that city of Mariupol in a bracing story. It was published late last night online in today's newspaper, and I just want to read from it. And again, this is disturbing. Headline, Ukrainians flee Mariupol as Russian forces push to take port city. Russian airstrikes, artillery, and mortar rounds have gutted entire neighborhoods in the strategically important target. The battle for the southern port city of Mariupol intensified Tuesday with fleeing civilians describing Russian and Ukrainian forces locked in street-by-street warfare through the city's downtown as Moscow's airstrikes gutted entire neighborhoods. Nearly a month after Russia invaded Ukraine, it is on the verge of taking Mariupol in what would be the first major city to fall under its control. But Mariupol is a shattered prize. Quote, everything fell apart, says Natalia Poliko, hours after arriving in a nearby city about 150 miles to the west with her eight-year-old daughter and five other relatives. Quote, we had a choice to wait there until a bomb fell on our building or risk trying to get out, and they took the risk. Hundreds of people from Mariupol now arrive daily in nearby cities in a grim procession of cars with shattered windshields and shrapnel damage speaking to the ordeal endured by their passengers. Those left behind, about 100,000 people, are under constant shelling, quote, in a complete blockade without food, water or medicine, said Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Mariupol has been a focus of the Russian offensive because it is strategically important, linking Russian-controlled parts of eastern Ukraine with a swath of territory Moscow has captured in the south and creating an arc containing much of the country's Russian-speaking population. This is the dynamic that I was just describing moments ago. That's why they're happy to turn this city into a parking lot as long as they control it. They see it as strategically important. They are waylaid and failing badly in the north, The south is where the gains are being made for the Russians. The story goes on to talk about these streams of cars from Mariupol pulling into parking lots of stores in nearby towns and cities. Taped to the windows are homemade signs reading children in Russian and strips of white material tied to the door handles. Scant protection from the war raging over their city. I would just point out that the homemade signs that say children are no protection whatsoever. In fact, given the absolute cruelty and barbarity of the Russians, I wonder if that would make them targets all the more. We remember that theater that was bombed by the Russians, where they had written in huge block letters on the ground on both sides of this theater, which was in a park. It was being used as a bomb shelter for women and for children. They had spelled out the word children in Russian. Clearly visible from the sky, huge white lettering on the grass. And the Russians intentionally bombed it. They don't care. Putin and his Cretans do not care. More than a dozen residents who fled since last week, this is the journal again, described a desperate struggle to stay alive in a city where venturing outside meant exposure to being shot, shredded by artillery fire, or obliterated in an airstrike. 
Think about that being your everyday. Quote, they are basically wiping the city from the face of the earth, said Andre, 37, who took his chances during a lull in the bombardment on Monday. On Monday and fled Mariupol with his wife and two children. This guy's my age. His city is being, in his words, wiped from the face of the earth. The overhead shots that you're seeing images of, I mean, it's like something out of a video game. Or World War II, like Dresden, cities after total carpet bombing. These are residential areas, apartment buildings, everything, hospitals. The bombardment of the city between 350 to 400,000 residents, at least before this all started, was growing heavier and closer by the day. Local officials say Russia has rained 50 to 100 bombs every day on Mariupol, destroying between 80 and 90 percent of the city. At this point, the city kind of exists in name only. And in the spirits and the souls of those people who have been lost there and who are hanging on there. Ukraine rejected a Russian ultimatum to surrender the city this week. Ukrainian military officials said Tuesday that those defending the town were able to destroy a Russian patrol boat operating close to the city as well as a Russian radio complex. Russian attacks flattened a maternity hospital in the city earlier this month. Attacks on a theater and an art school trapped hundreds of people sheltering from the fighting, according to local officials. The total number of fatalities at the sites remains uncertain. Toward the end of February, so this is now weeks ago, the power was cut. On March 2nd, Internet was lost. Then the phone network. Then cooking gas. Then running water. From the window of their fifth-floor apartment, Edgar Javarian and his wife could see jets tearing through the sky overhead and then hear loud explosions. They decided to move to his parents' house in another district of Mariupol, where the shelling was less intense. Days later, an explosive device landed a short distance from the house. A neighbor was blown apart when she was outside. Her husband collected her body parts. This man, now living with his parents and his wife, joined a convoy of vehicles to get out when the opportunity arose. That image is... Searing and devastating. A dazed man picking up body pieces of his wife. An innocent woman blown to bits by the Russians. In this war that has no justification and no legitimate provocation whatsoever. The Journal reports, for those caught in Mariupol, the situation has been desperate. Women and children largely stayed hidden while men ventured out to scavenge for food, find water, and search for a phone signal to find out what was going on. Dimitro, who's 25, joined efforts with neighbors that he had never met before to find wood and keep a fire burning from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day. On March the 9th, he was making tea on that fire when an airstrike hit the nearby maternity hospital in what was one of the highest-profile attacks on civilians during the almost month-long fighting. The shockwave from the bombing lifted him off of his feet. Since then, he said, the bombardment has been relentless. 
as the bombing intensified, basements and bomb shelters filled up as people whose homes had been destroyed sought shelter in the shrinking area of the city, still controlled by Ukrainian forces. In the cold and dark basements under the city, with no connection to the outside world, residents waited for a breakthrough. After Russian forces took control of the main intensive care hospital, there was nowhere to treat the wounded, nor any medicine, people who fled the city say. This is a brutal line coming up. The director of the Heart Disease Center said that he had been forced to amputate the mangled leg of a patient using a kitchen knife without anesthetic. I mean, it's hard to overstate how dire this is. Supermarket carts. Supermarket carts, which we use to collect our produce and frozen pizzas and maybe ice cream for a cheat night or what have you. Over there, supermarket carts were used to carry bodies strewn in the streets, according to a 28-year-old woman, a customs worker who fled the city several days ago. There were so many dead in her district that people no longer bothered to bury them. Quote, it's hard to even imagine how many people have died. And at the very end of this story in the Wall Street Journal today, They talk about a family that doesn't really know what's next. Family says they don't know where to turn, but didn't want to move too far away from their hometown. Quote, we will never return there if Russia takes it. But we are prepared to live in the ruins if it remains Ukrainian. This is a young woman speaking. My soul stayed in Mariupol. If the Russians take this city, if they keep this city, whatever's left of it, she believes her family will never go back. But if the Russians end up losing or withdrawing, she wants to go home, even if it's just rocks, smoldering wreckage. Quote, we are prepared to live in the ruins if it remains Ukrainian. My soul stayed in Mariupol. Just a very impacting, haunting account from the Wall Street Journal. And while there is, as I mentioned, a fair amount of positive news from the Ukrainian perspective, from the Western perspective, from the anti-Putin perspective, which is what we have on this show, no bones about it, not nuanced, not subtle. I think it's just pretty close to black and white, good and evil here. And those pieces of good news... And those advances for the Ukrainians and those huge, devastating setbacks for the Russians, that's all very welcome. But that doesn't change the immediate humanitarian disaster and crisis facing millions of people. And it seems nowhere is it worse than Mariupol. We have to take a break. We'll do that. We'll come back. On The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. As we continue on The Guy Benson Show, just reflecting on that last segment, it's impossible to hear those details and not with conviction believe that the Russians are guilty of war crimes. 
And that's precisely what the U.S. State Department has finally and formally declared today. It's unavoidable. It's looking at us right in the face. Now, I mentioned there's been some good news as well, and I touched on a bit of it. A few more details, and again, I want to talk to military experts about this in the coming days on this show. They have, the Ukrainians, taken back some territory in the north, in the outskirts of Kiev, including a key suburb. This counteroffensive that has been buzzed about for a number of days now is real. It's happening, and it's apparently making some advances where the Russians are being pushed back in the north. U.S. officials saying that Ukraine is, quote, able and willing to take back territory, and that is now underway. Retired Russian officials are now grumbling to the press about how badly this is going. One saying the enemy was underestimated in every aspect. Another saying we can definitively say nothing is going to plan. Reports of fissures within Russian leadership. Russian soldiers getting frostbite, running out of still food and fuel and ammunition. Weaponry being confiscated by the Ukrainians from the Russians, including some munitions and weapon systems that apparently are of very high value. At least 15 high-ranking officers, Russian officers, killed in the field of battle, including at least five generals already, amid up to 15,000 Russians killed. That's the latest NATO estimate. So it's not all doom and gloom by any stretch for the Ukrainians, but there is doom and gloom being inflicted on the people there by the Russians, which is why we wanted to cover that story and read so much of it to you from the Wall Street Journal. We will shift gears and get to Dr. Marty McCary after this break on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show from D.C. and our Tony Snow studios. Thank you for listening. Joining us now is Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, surgeon, and also professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins. Author of the book, The Price We Pay, on Twitter at Marty, M-A-K-A-R-Y, at Marty McCary. Doctor, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you again. I want to start by asking you about this BA2 variant that is now really becoming prominent around the world. It is taking over certain countries, and it's, of course, been detected here already. What do we know about it, and how should Americans who are jittery think about this variant? Yeah, so BA2 is generally um, a little more contagious, so you're more likely to pick it up with asymptomatic testing, that is the broad screening that people have when they go to a, an event or at, at the workplace or at school. It's not more dangerous, but because it's more likely to show up as a positive test on screening, they're seeing an increase in cases in Europe that's now peaked. As of probably yesterday, it's now peaked. So there's been definitely an uptick. I wouldn't call it a full-fledged wave. And because Europe and specifically the UK is a pretty reliable predictor of what's going to happen in the US, we've been bracing. Generally, they are a preview of what's going to happen here by about a three to four week lag. We've been bracing for this uptick. Doesn't really translate into increased hospitalizations, but we haven't seen it. And so there's a number of theories as to why, but we haven't seen it yet. But it is possible we could see an uptick of this BA2 variant or the second Omicron variant, also known as the stealth Omicron variant. What about South Korea, which has been able to stave off really any major outbreaks for two years? That good fortune has run out. I mean, they're getting absolutely slammed with this huge, huge wave right now. The good news is they're heavily vaccinated, so deaths are relatively low. But 
seems like there are some lessons from South Korea that even the most compliant society with distancing and masking and all of the mitigation strategies, I mean, at some point, you're going to have a huge spike. I mean, it seems like this is ultimately a virus that is unavoidable. And the best thing you can do is try to protect your population against hospitalization and death with the vaccines being a huge tool in that arsenal. Yes or no? Yeah, that, that's that's right. And so one of the mysteries of COVID-19 that has really, really sort of outsmarted all the experts is that there's a lag with COVID-19 that's really inexplicable. If you remember when it hit New York at the beginning of the pandemic in the U.S., it didn't jump around the rest of the country as everyone had predicted. And it was later that summer that the South got hit. And then uh, we thought we were kind of beyond it. And out of nowhere, India gets hit. I mean, why didn't India have a mass outbreak sooner? And out of that outbreak in India came the Delta variant. So it does have this sort of lagging, inexplicable tendency that's really outsmarted all the, all the predictions. So in South Korea, they've never really had a bad wave. And so it's hitting them now. There was probably some, some complacency. Yes, they have an 87% vaccination rate, but that means 13% are not, and natural immunity may not be that prevalent there. So they may be the people that are showing up. But all in all, let's remember, North Korea is still doing pretty well. Island countries or places where they had well, South Korea, South Korea, yeah, um, where they've basically been able to control the flow of people in and out. Uh, they've done the best. New Zealand, Australia, generally in the early stage, they've just been able to monitor the people coming in and out very carefully. So South Korea was in that group where they did well early on, and um, they sort of let their guard down. That's what we think happened. Also, they just approved Paxlovid, the antiviral that cut COVID deaths to zero. We've had it for a while. But overall, they have 13,000 deaths in the country, 51 million. So they're still doing much better, relatively speaking. They're just getting hit later. Question on children. I'm seeing now reports of some schools bringing masking back because of concerns about outbreaks or this new variant. Some schools, you've got a lot of kids getting sick, not necessarily from COVID, but just, you know, a cold because people have been separated. People have been in masks for so long. Now these kids are circulating with each other. I just wonder, is part of that a a decreased immunity to all sorts of different maladies and diseases because kids have been so isolated for so long. And now that they're back together, you have these immune systems that are not as strong as they typically are among kids. And schools kind of build that immunity up in that environment under normal circumstances. It's been anything but normal for the last two years. What are your thoughts on that phenomenon that we're starting to get at least anecdotes about around the country? Well, what you're describing is is a medical principle that is true, and that is when you are not exposed to certain pathogens and then get exposed in a environment where it can jump around, you can get hit hard. So, for example, flu has been very mild for the last couple of years. We anticipate we're going to have a very bad flu season at some point here. Uh, RSV, which is a virus that infects children, respiratory syncytial virus, was sort of um, not around as it normally is, and and exposing people where their immune systems uh, develop some immunity. And so for the first year of the pandemic, RSV was not circulating among children. Well, last summer, they got hit hard. hard. I mean, there were more hospitalizations for RSV than COVID last year, a story you didn't hear about. So the question is, are we going to accept some risk um, in children? 
uh, or in society of some positive cases, or are we going to put them in a bubble? And that is the dilemma right now where you're seeing a lot of different opinions. Some are still trying to achieve a COVID zero strategy, and others are saying, look at what kids are dying from. It's other things more than COVID, um, homicide, suicide, you name it, accidents. And let's not, you know, increase the risk of mental illness by and not even necessarily to- what they're dying from. It's just other things that they're being affected by. Right. And getting sick That's and right. having to go home from school and stay home with rashes of colds going all across classrooms and, and in schools. And when you put kids in a bubble that is keeping them away from one another to prevent the spread of a disease that does not affect kids overwhelmingly in any sort of significant way, there are follow on effects from those policy decisions, including health effects beyond just, you know, academic progress and mental well-being and and all of the things that you and I have talked about many times, something as similar as a depressed immune system that hasn't really been flexing its muscles very much. Now all these germs are in the air and you've got kids getting sick in huge numbers, not from COVID. I mean, that's yet another example of perhaps an unintended consequence from some of these COVID restrictions, right? I mean, I feel like that's one of the takeaways here. Yeah, so an infection rebound phenomena after you put people in a bubble for a long time is real and it happens and we saw it with RSV and it's um, it's something that could happen with any of these respiratory viruses since we've had kids in a relative bubble. And then on top of that separate is the mental health and other societal social consequences right, right. of isolation. So you're right, two, two two things to think about, which we haven't been thinking about. All we've been thinking about is stopping all viral replication at all cost. And, you know, that has consequences. The CDC in the last few days has admitted that they had a mistake, a data entry error or a coding glitch with their algorithm, and they have reduced the overall official U.S. death toll with or of COVID by about 72,000. And within that number, It includes hundreds of pediatric deaths that were previously classified as COVID deaths, and now they have been reclassified more accurately. And with those 400 or so pediatric deaths taken off the table out of the official stats, that number within that category, that demographic, we talked about this yesterday on the show, decreased by almost a quarter. Roughly 24% of pediatric COVID deaths were just wiped out because of this coding error that's now been corrected Just your overall thoughts on this mistake by the CDC that they've now admitted to, what the implications are, especially vis-a-vis children and those numbers. Well, five days before they made that correction, I said on Fox and Friends with Pete Hegseth that there's no way the death numbers are correct in the United States. The daily death count at at that time, which was about uh, 10 days ago when I did this interview, it was 1,600 deaths a day. I said mathematically impossible. It, the death, daily death numbers had a serious math problem. Why? Because I talked to doctors in large medical centers and they say, yeah, we might have had a death in the last month. Or large children's hospitals say we had two deaths the entire pandemic. Now, that, that may be an average. There's some with more than that. But there's no way it's 1,600 a day. So what's, ha- what's happening was a lot of incidentals were getting put into their incidental positive test results in cases where patient died from something not COVID related. And so we had this massive change where they actually knocked off like 30,000 deaths and uh, hundreds in the pediatric population. Now, the bigger problem 
they blamed it on a coding error, is that the CDC still has never told us how many healthy kids in the United States have died of COVID. It could be zero. They've never broken down the number, which is a number somewhere under 1,000 deaths over two years from COVID in all kids under 18. So in you Germany, mean like kids they, without, without comorbidities, kids who are otherwise normal or healthy, the number of those kids who died due to COVID, we do not have that number. We've never had that number, and it could be zero. In other words, so let's look at Germany, one of the countries that's more honest and transparent with their data. They broke down all the pediatric deaths age 5 through 17 in that country and broke it down by those who had comorbidities versus who were entirely healthy. Zero COVID deaths in kids entirely healthy in that country. Over 15 months at a, at a time when none of them were really vaccinated. It was the first 15 months of the pandemic. So if no healthy children, ch child has died of COVID, and we don't know, it could be zero, could be five, could be 10, but we've never gotten that number. How are we so certain that we have to implement certain policies to protect kid, healthy kids? Now, it used to be that if you uh, do certain things with healthy kids and vaccinate them, isolate them, you could protect those who had comorbidities, but we know that's not true now with vaccination. We know it doesn't stop transmission. And so the case to immunize a kid with a comorbidity is clearly there. The case to immunize a healthy kid has never been demonstrated with data. It's never been demonstrated. They only use positive case numbers as a surrogate. No one's ever looked at deaths or hospitalizations as a benefit of vaccinating healthy kids. So we're yeah, making a lot of decisions on, on healthy kids with no data on healthy kids. This is the reason why people might be saying, OK, you've made this point so many different times, McCary and Benson. We get it. Mm -hmm. The reason that we keep making the point, at least from my perspective, is we keep getting more data and more information. And I think it's important to share that with the audience. And also with new variants starting to spread, you are going to have some people and it's already happening in some places arguing that the solution is to go backwards, to put masks back on children in schools to require vaccines for small children, regardless of their health status. And I think the reason that I keep beating the drum day after day is at this point, not so much reactive to the things that I think need to be done, but preemptive to the stuff that I worry might happen again, based not on medicine or science from adults who apparently have learned very few lessons over the last two years. Doctor, I'll give you quickly the last word. So I'm right now in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, and I was talking with some parents, and they said that at one of the schools, the majority of the kids in that school do what, what they call cutting, which is trying to cut themselves. So what is the etiology of that? Where is that coming from? There are downsides of these draconian policies that we have yet to unpack because nobody's studying them, and there's no impetus to study it. We don't have anyone motivated to study vaccine-related complications or uh, suicide rates or attempts in young, healthy people. So I, I think there have been downsides to the isolation and masking in kids that adults just don't appreciate. The only people in America today forced to wear masks are young children like toddlers and waiters and waitresses and staff. That is a disparity that should uh, appall anybody if they are interested in equality. Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, surgeon and professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins. We always appreciate your insights. Thanks for joining us today from the West Coast. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. We'll take a break. When we come back, the home stretch, we will 
change topics completely again, and this time try to end on a slightly happier note here in this less than happy, happy hour. That's next on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Home stretch, and boy, do we deserve something a little bit lighter to end the show because this hour has been tough talking about war and then COVID and the pandemic. Let's talk about puppies here on The Guy Benson Show, where our podcast is free every day on demand. I'll remind you, GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. It is National Puppy Day, and many of you who listen regularly know that I have a very sweet Bedlington Terrier named Roy. Corduroy is his full name, but we call him Roy for short. And I gave him a little piece of fried chicken today for National Puppy Day, although he gets a lot of little spoiled treats, I have to admit. But he's wonderful. And he did something this week that was absolutely hilarious, which I'll get to in a second. But before I do, quickly, Dan, you mentioned to the team today on our planning call that you and your girlfriend are seriously considering getting a puppy? Is that imminent? Yeah, well, I mean, she sends me, you know, pictures of them all day, every day. So I'm assuming that's what what's going to happen very soon. So we're getting to the point where we're looking at, you know, adoption uh, places and things like that. So it's looking like it's going to be. Are you looking for the type of dog that would be apartment friendly? Because, you know, sometimes if you don't have a wide open space or a yard or something, it's hard for some breeds to get exercise that they need. Is that something you're mindful of or are you going to do what Christine did and just pounce on the first dog you can possibly find and then, you know, figure it out later? Well, we're definitely mindful of it. Um, Like you said, we are an apartment. So there's a park across the street and a dog park, so that's fine. But we both want kind of on the larger side of a dog. I love German Shepherds, so we're thinking of that, but they need a lot of work. Really big, really big dog. And, Christine, I just do want to make sure that your dog, Rosie, is still with us because we don't hear much about Rosie. You made sort of a gut-level, not terribly well-thought-through pandemic dog purchase from not getting one to getting one seemingly overnight. And we don't really hear too much about little Rosie. So just I want to do a wellness check on that pooch. She is doing very well. Uh, It's taking her a while to uh, adjust to the new home. But if you're trying to ask me in the nice way, is Rosie still alive? Yes. Okay. We're going to have to maybe send War Wyatt to march over there and, and make sure, you know, trust but verify. It's just a Reagan thing. Trust but verify for poor Rosie and make sure that she hasn't gone the route of, well, you know, carousel. And I will end with this story about Roy this week. Adam and I were watching TV. Roy usually stays up late with me until I go to bed. And then he sleeps until whenever I get up. And I take him out to go to the bathroom at the very end of the night. Then we go up to bed. That's the routine. And at one point, Adam, I looked around. It wasn't that late. It was kind of on the earliest side, 11 or 1130. And he says, where's Roy? And I looked around. We sort of called for him. We whistled a little bit. Nowhere. So Adam got up off the couch, was looking around. He then went upstairs. And Roy was just curled up on our bed by himself, just kind of waiting, half asleep. And Adam came down. He said, guy. Roy Irish goodbye us. He went up to bed without us. And I said, that is a dog with the Irish goodbye after Cookie's own heart. <laughs> they are in some ways soulmates because of that moment. An Irish goodbye from an English breed. 
No Irish goodbye here from us. Consider this your formal goodbye as we are out of time on the Wednesday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Back here tomorrow for more, 3 to 6 Eastern. Until then, have a wonderful evening, and thank you for listening. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.